All right, let's open our Bibles to, um, let's see, where do I want to preach tonight? Let's try Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. It's good to be back with you folks. Not a single amen. Oh, well. Actually, I've preached from this passage one time before, but I'm sure nobody remembers it. But not this message. This is a new message. Philippians chapter 4, I'm beginning reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, Whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. And no need to turn there, but also Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because He trusteth in thee. And so our message tonight is uh, transforming to perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for an opportunity we have tonight. Thank you for these folks that have come. Pray that You would open our minds. Pray the Holy Spirit would uh, be our teacher. And Lord, that what we hear tonight would be something that sticks with us, something we put into practice. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a question to start off asking of you. You don't need to answer out loud, but how many of you are rejoicing in the Lord always? Um, Jesus seemed to describe the condition of American society and really of our world as a whole when He said in Luke 21, verse 25 and 26, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, we have not seen or are not, are not seeing uh, some of the astrophysical signs that the Lord uh, mentions in this passage, but there is great distress among nations and people around the world are greatly perplexed. Uh, they are overcome with fears about rioting, about the breakdown of law, about the danger of disease, about the possibility of famine, uh, financial collapse of nations, economies. Many places, I think people or nations are building up for war. And every day the, new, the media uh, announces or writes about or reports some new catastrophe that's happened or that is on the brink of occurring. But beside the fear monger of the national news, we also hear about uh, all the time a lot of personal tragedies, individual lives. We have, hear about crimes, we hear about the breakup of families, um, suicide, about loved ones being uh, sick or maimed, children harmed, children rejecting their parents and their beliefs. And of course, there's a tremendous drug problem in our nation, both prescribed and illicit, and uh, self-medicating, especially with marijuana. That was a, a thing back when I was in high school, but it's even more so today after I think it, it kind of died out for a while, but it's really big now. 
pain meds, and just good old-fashioned alcohol. That's still a favorite. And uh, that drug problem extends to the Christian community as well, as well. Uh, particularly with a diagnosis of mental illness, being bipolar, ADHD, and so forth. Now, I am greatly concerned about the dramatic change in character which uh, American society has changed in American society since I was a child. You know, it was about 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, when I was a child, we still had a work ethic. We still had a respect for authority. They still paddled in schools when I was in grammar school and so forth. There were still honest people. I was sixth grade. I didn't even know what homosexuality was. I had no idea. Um, so you didn't have that kind of thing. There were no same-sex marriages. There were no transgenders. There might have been in California at that time, San Francisco, but I didn't. There were. I didn't know it. Um, I grew up attending a liberal Presbyterian church, no gospel preached, and yet many of the people that were in my my parents' generations, they uh, they demonstrated a reverence toward God. They had a, had a reverence about worship, and uh, that seems to have totally disappeared from our society today. Um, there's no wonder that people are afraid. No wonder they're perplexed. Isaiah 57, verse 20 and 21 say, "But the wicked are like the troubled sea." when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And uh, people in our society, they're scared to death or they're angry. uh, And that's going on. And of course, there may not be any peace for the wicked, but that should not be the case among God's people who are saved and who have been sanctified. Um, The questions are, how many people are truly saved. And then of those that profess salvation, how many of them are being sanctified by God? And those are, those are difficult questions to answer. Um, however, it's not difficult to know the way of sanctification and the way of peace, the supernatural peace that only God can give. The Bible is God's perfect revelation of Himself. It's His perfect revelation of eternal truth. And the Bible reveals an infallible way to have increasing supernatural peace in the life of a redeemed soul. And to have that peace, the Christian has to direct his thoughts into righteousness and thereby utilize God's grace to be transformed and to possess what the Bible calls perfect peace. And so I want us to look at this promise of supernatural peace and then the path to supernatural peace. We talk about the promise here we've got in chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says, be careful for nothing. That really just means don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And I quoted Isaiah 26, 3 a while ago, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Now, Paul wrote here that there is a peace that originates with God that exceeds man's understanding. Uh, It's uncommon. When people see this kind of peace manifested in other people's lives, they're amazed. In fact, they may even comment to you about it or something. They are unfamiliar with this kind of peace. They've never experienced it themselves. So when they see somebody manifest that type of peace in some of today's circumstances, they, they are, they are they're really amazed. Sometimes they're shocked when they see somebody that uh, they've known in the past to be wild or worried, angry, controlled by panic attacks, whatever, all of a sudden they have this unusual calm. Kind of reminds me of the demoniac that Jesus delivered in Luke 8, verse 35. It says, And they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus 
and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, had been running all over the place chasing people, clothed, he had been naked, and in his right mind, now here it says, and they were afraid. Because it, it's, it's just unusual. It's rare. People whose lives were once full of drama, they now become a bedrock of stability and dependability. Indeed, Isaiah says that God will keep individuals in a perfect peace. I will keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on me because he trusteth in thee. Now, the Hebrew literally says, Thou wilt keep him in peace, peace. Or we, we could say, um, well, it translates perfectly peace, but uh, we could say peaceful peace. Uh, Hebrew, the Hebrew language a lot of times re- repeats, has repetition when it's trying to emphasize something. It's intensified, so you, you probably, there's a few Hebrew words and Greek words that you know. One of them is shalom. So he'll keep us in shalom, shalom. That's what it says. And it's more than just the idea of peace, but it's kind of like a wholeness. Everything about you is in its right place and so forth. And so this kind of person, in a, in a real sense, cannot be agitated. Now think about that. He's undisturbed by circumstances around him. And how does he get this perfect peace? Well, the answer is twofold. Number one, it says that God keeps that person. In other words, the peace comes from a divine um, guarding or preserving. In fact, when the Bible in Psalm 12 starts talk, talks about preserving the Word of God, it's the same word. But here it's talking about God preserving us in peace. The other aspect of it, there's, there's credit given to the individual. God is keeping us. He's preserving us. But uh, it says the person fixes his mind upon God and he trusts God. So this perfect peace is not a dream. It's not imaginary. It's, it's not uh, the stuff of fairy tales or anything like that. But the Bible not, uh, not only gives us the promise of peace, but it, here in Philippians particularly, and of course in other places, it talks about the path of this peace. And that's what we want to focus on tonight. So we, it's very definitely, talks about a supernatural peace. Uh, passes understanding, it's perfect. Those ways described in these two different passages. But the path of supernatural peace begins, it's all about this process of renewing our minds. Now, the mind, I've probably said this before here, but the mind and the brain are not the same thing. Your, your brain is a physical organ. Your mind is part of your spiritual makeup. Now, we're, if you go to Romans 12... One of the first places where we sort of get this idea of renewing comes from Romans 12. We will go back to uh, spend some more time in Philippians 4, but just it states it in sort of summary here. It's a well-known passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. By proving it, that means you you test it, but you also live it. The good, acceptable, perfect will of God. And it begins with this presentation of the body and the mind. Is it's talking about there. Now, so at some point, and then regularly thereafter, the Christian presents himself or herself to God, our bodies to God. Uh, that presentation is like you put in a sacrifice on an altar, uh, or it's used, for example, when in Acts, um, let's see, 
23:33 it says that Paul they brought the Roman uh, centurion or officers brought Paul in there he presented a letter to the king that was going to try the people were going to try him and then it presented Paul and so it's kind of like uh, you know stepping in standing somewhere and say hello my name is so and so and you know whatever but here we are presenting our bodies to God um, as a sacrifice. Now, sacrifices are supposed to be dead. They're to be killed. But this is a living sacrifice. So it means what it means is I have died to self, but now I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to live for self anymore. So it's kind of like the whole picture of resurrection. You die and then you uh, get up to live for the Lord. And it says that the way we do this is that we are not going to be, we're not being conformed to the world or by the world. The word is translated conformed here has the idea of being pressed into a mold. So if you've made cookies, you know, you get that cookie cutter, put your dough down here, stamp that. It may just cut out a pattern or it may actually shape the top of the dough or whatever, but it's the dough hadn't changed. It's all the same thing. Whatever you've got there, it's there, but the shape has changed. So an outward conformity. We're not to be conformed to the world. For example, First uh, Peter 1, 8, 14 says, As obedient children, not fashioning ourselves to the former lust in your ignorance. So again, it's this, not this outward influence upon us. But that's contrasted with not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Those are two very different things. One just deals with kind of the outward conformity, whether it's actions or looks or whatever it is. But the other one is being transformed. Now, that's the Greek word metamorpho. Y'all have been familiar with that word? (laughs) I just used it because it's it, our word metamorphosis comes straight from it. You know, metamorphosis is right. Y'all had uh, some, at least one partial class of science in school, and we usually think of metamorphosis with a caterpillar and a butterfly, a complete different change. And in the Bible, is talking about really the the morph part of it has to do with the essence of something. And so it's being a transformation of essence, not just an outward shape, but transformed from the inside out. That caterpillar goes in there with a hairy worm in a cocoon, and it comes out and it's, there's a little bit of something kind of like a worm body there, but you got these beautiful wings and so forth, something that flies, doesn't crawl around the ground. Uh, and it's used about the Lord Jesus when He was on the Mount of... Transfiguration, same word there, and it says his not his face and his clothes were glistering; they were glowing. So, not like anything that we've ever seen. Uh, or in Second Corinthians three eighteen, this is more about what we're talking about here. But we all, with open face, beholding as in the glass the glory of the Lord. So it's like we're looking through a mirror, a window, or whatever at the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That changed is the idea there. God's Holy Spirit is changing us. It's not putting on new clothes on the outside. It's changing us from the inside out. And what we're doing is changing or making new our minds. The spiritual being, the decision maker, the one that controls the desires and all those types of things. Real, the mind is, a, is what makes us like God. We're made in His image. We can make decisions. We can make choices. But our mind has to be changed and transformed for us to do that. And uh, part of that is, again, stopping the world from conforming us and allowing God to transform us. And that involves... Uh, a couple of steps. Second Corinthians ten five says, casting down imaginations and bringing every thought into 
uh, cast down imaginations and every, every height and exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought into obedience of Christ. Okay, so we have these imaginations or thoughts or reasonings that are in opposition to God. They exalt themselves against God. They challenge His control and His authority and so forth. And we're casting those down and bringing our thoughts in obedience, our mind, our reasoning and so forth, into obedience to God. Now, the casting down, just to kind of get the idea there, Luke twelve eighteen, this man that made a lot of money said, I will pull down my barns. So if it's modern day, he said, we don't have any, these things are not sufficient. Get the bulldozer in here. We'll just kind of run over this thing and we're going to pull it down. Or, for example, um, Acts thirteen nineteen, It says, and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land. So here's God completely wiping out and destroying. So this is the idea we're, we're destroying. Casting down, completely destroying these imaginations. Now we we think of an imagination as something that's not true. We're just we're thinking about it. We're creating it in our minds, and really, that's really what dominates the mind of the sinner. These thoughts, certainly, most of the things that we worry about or dream about. <laughs> Uh, they don't ever come about. It's, it's just an imagination. Um, actually, the word imagination is there is it, it refers to reasonings, our thinking. You know, you, you hear somebody say something, you think, how in the world did you come to that conclusion? What's wrong with your thinking? What's wrong with your reasoning? And the word comes from the idea of framing something. Okay, we've probably got some people who have done some carpentry work here. You're going to build a building, you put up a frame. That shapes the rest of the building. And so this is the way we frame our thoughts and our thinking, and it leads to the conclusion we come to, the actions and so forth. Um, for example, Psalm 103, verse 14 it says, for he knoweth our frame. This is, this is the same word that's translated imaginations in the Old Testament. God knows our frame, but what we're normally used to, these imaginations, are like Genesis 6-5. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart were only conti- evil continually. So here... He's looking at all of us, all of mankind, the earth at that time, and he's seeing how we're framing our thoughts. We believe this, and therefore this, and then I'm going to do this, and so forth. And all of it was sinful. All of it was wicked. That's just the natural mind. But that same word, imagination, is used in Isaiah 26, verse 3. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth thee. So there it's saying that a person is framing his thoughts so that we focused upon and founded upon God. And our framing is so that we will trust in God. Now, so we cast down imaginations and bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we're, we're lassoing <laughs> our thoughts, which, you know, they can tend to go like this <laughs> in all kind of directions. You can even be praying and have thoughts that are just way out there or actually rather sinful. He says we're going to capture them, we're going to bring them into captivity, conquer them, and make captive every thought 
So it is obeying the Lord. Obeying what the Bible teaches. Obeying what the Bible uh, commands us to do. Uh, I always like using... Uh, Bob Sr. had all these sayings that, that they would write down and so forth, but he would say this, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from making a nest in your hair. And that's the idea. You're as a Christian, you have a thought. Who knows where it came from? Maybe past action may just be your sinful heart. Maybe from influences around you to say, wait a minute, that's wrong. And so I get rid of it and start thinking the right way about whatever it is. A young guy may have a thought of lust and he stops it. He's got to stop it. Get rid of that. That's wrong. I can't allow that thought to continue. You know, for example, in uh, Matthew, I think it's 5, 23, uh, whosoever looketh upon a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery where they're already in his heart. So he has this lustful thought, but he stops it so that it doesn't go any further than it should. I mean, God says in the Bible that certain women were attractive. You can say that. Hey, she's good looking, but that's where it stops. I'm going to bring my thoughts into captivity. Or worrying. I could realize, hey, you know, uh, looks like we're running low. Uh, my wallet's about empty, and we've got a couple more weeks to go this month. And I can start, wor- start worrying about that, or I can say, wait a minute. God has promised to provide. I've tried to be a good steward. And so now I'm going to remember the things all the times that God has provided for me when there, I, I, there wasn't any way I could see it. So I'm trusting in the Lord and not allowing my imaginations to run away with me into, into sinful behavior so that in my mind I don't transgress. There's these boundaries. Trans means it. Gress means a to step. Trans is a cross. So I don't want to step over those boundaries and to get into sinful thoughts. I want to control that and make sure my thoughts go in the, a way that's in agreement with the Word of God. Excuse me. So we're replacing sinful thoughts with righteous thoughts. In fact, back in chapter 2, the whole book of Philippians has kind of a general idea of rejoicing, a general theme. But in Philippians 2 verse 5, he says, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Well, that thought's just not going to just try to overtake me. And if I'm here and preaching, the Holy Spirit's working in my heart, there will be the influence. But I let that happen by actually choosing to control the way that I think and to bring it in obedience with the Word of God. For example, here's one, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 16:11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, our thinking is there's pleasures in all kind of things, but doing right? Is that a pleasure, a uh, fun thing? <laughs> Pleasureful? Uh, whatever. I can't get that word in my mind out. But pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures, are in doing the will of God. So, just to pick on Kevin Jones over there, this is what he was thinking as a young person in college. God was dealing with him about surrendering to the call to be a missionary, and he thought this was his thinking. I go to the mission field, I had to marry an ugly woman. That's the way the sinful mind thinks. That's the way I thought as an unsaved young person. I thought, if I get saved, I'll miss all the fun things in life. But here, he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. So anytime when I step out of the presence of God, actually my joy is going down. My pleasure is diminishing. There might be a burst of pleasure in sin in some way or another, although a lot of it's not even 
pleasurable. But then after that, there's nothing but regret. And so we need to think rightly about that. That's the reason we memorize Scripture. And so here in Philippians 4, if you'll go back there, he gives us a, he deals with some of the most basic aspects of renewing the mind. These are practical particulars of renewing the mind. And the first one's in chapter 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Probably if you quit reading the news as much, it would help with that. Instead of worry, instead of anger, uh, instead of lust, etc., we are to rejoice in Christ. Okay? Um, so, how do you start your day? Well, you probably know the song, This is the day. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice. We will be glad. Uh, we rejoice and be glad in it. And so it begins by not necessarily singing that song, but making that decision. Okay, today I've got to do this. I've got to, I've got to go try to collect this payment from the person that owes me. Oh, I don't want to do that. Or we can say, you know, today's a day to serve the Lord. He's promised to help me. I can do all things through Christ with strength me. He'll guide me. All these promises that I have, I can start thinking about those things and, and rejoice in the Lord. He's the one that's died for me. He's given me eternal life and so forth. Um, so I start with rejoicing in the Lord always. Now, the Bible talks about in everything give thanks. That doesn't mean necessarily that we're thankful for what happened except that we know that the Lord is in control and He can use even evil for our good. And when He sold Joseph, God was responsible for selling Joseph into slavery. It wasn't His brothers. Joseph said a number of years later to his brothers, look, God put me there to be able to save you from starvation. Now, it took him 20 years to learn that. So a lot of times we, we do things we don't know why God is doing, but we can say this, you know what, God is always good and God is always doing the right thing. If I'm rejoicing in Him and want to do His will, I have, I have a reason to rejoice in it. Secondly, He says practice moderation with everybody. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Well, moderation is just self-restraint. It's translated patience. In one place, 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, it says, um, Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. So it's kind of got those two together. He's patient, not a brawler, not getting angry and fighting, having arguments and so forth. Or... In Titus 3, 2, speak evil of no man to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So I'm under control. I'm controlling my emotions. I'm controlling my responses and so forth. Why? Because the Lord's at hand. You know, all of our behavior has been affected by the fact that somebody is nearby. Might be somebody in a police car over here parked down down the road a little bit. I know that none of us have ever slowed down just because we saw a police car or a highway patrol. No, we we do. We, in fact, we, even if we are trying to obey the speed, we look down there. We're going to check down there and see. Am I? Because the police is at hand. He says the Lord is at hand. We should be walking in the presence of the Lord, and not only that, that He will be at hand. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. That should control our behavior. We should be gentle. We should be patient. We should have our emotions under control. A person that lives by his emotions is a carnal person. Without fail. Somebody who lives by their emotions is a carnal person. You don't want to, you don't want to marry somebody like that. Okay? 
Uh, or like this. This again, you're in, at home, you're having an argument. Your husband or your wife is being an idiot and you're letting them know about it and the phone rings. Hello. Boy, that tone of voice changed. We, we bring it into moderation. So we can do it. It's just a matter of not whether we will. Let your moderation be known to everybody. Work people, family people, outlaws, I mean in-laws, you know... Practice moderation. Then he says in verses 6 and 7, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So he given us one fuller statement, but all about all this whole passage is about having the peace of God. A peace that passes understanding. In this case, he says, don't be anxious, worried about anything. You know, all uh, tied up with cares. Most of the time in the Bible, this word is translated, take no thought. So it doesn't mean don't plan. It means you're not to allow your thoughts to get out of hand because you're worried about things. You're anxious about them. Um, it's... The way we call this in bad cases is panic attacks. Panic attack. And I, I'm driving down the road and I start thinking about something or maybe I'm not even thinking about anything. It just comes over me and I, my heart starts beating and I feel like I'm, I may be going to die I, you know, or whatever. I, just, I, I, I get these rapid thoughts. I'm laying at night and I start thinking about this. I'm worried about it. All of a sudden it just... You know, what about this? What about that? And so forth. And it physically, I'm responding. What do we do? Well, first of all, he says, pray. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. So I'm I'm worried about this. I, I I can't get a handle. It's been it's been plaguing me all day. In fact, there's some I've had to sit still in the car or whatever for a while just to try to get up enough control to go somewhere or do anything. And he said I'm supposed to pray. What am I supposed to do when I pray? So we're to pray with what? Thanksgiving. So, when I'm worried about all this, whatever it is, I start thanking, thanking the Lord for the way He's helped me in the past. That terrible thing that was going to happen yesterday, but it didn't. So, I, instead of worrying, I start thanking the Lord. I, I remember, and I've, I've used this a lot because I'm. I'm getting old and you can only remember a certain number of things, but I remember sitting in a grad class first semester when I was at Bob Jones after going there and uh, I had, I think it was the first semester, first year, a class called Old Testament Introduction. And Hebrew was pretty difficult, but Old Testament Introduction is supposed to be the most difficult class in, in all of grad school. Um... Dr. Bell was the instructor. <laughs> and he's, with the first day of class, we're all sitting in there. And he starts telling what we're going to do in the class. He starts telling how we're going to do these tests, which he did. What he did was this. He would come in, you get a piece of paper, and he would have a stopwatch in his hand. And he would give you an answer. And he says, you've got two minutes to answer. I question you, you've got two minutes to answer. He'd cut that thing off. <laughs> And for two minutes, you had to write everything you knew about the question that he gave you. And then you stopped when his two minutes were up. That's the way he did things. And I started hearing all this stuff that we were going to be doing. And I, 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 I how will I ever pass this class? Well, you know, I was 21 years old, at least. And that means I'd been through 
kindergarten, 12 years of school, four years of college, and I graduated honors from college. And I thought, why am I worried about this? I've prayed about all these years and everything's... The Lord's helped me all the way. Why would I be concerned at this point in allowing these unreasonable imaginations to control my mind? I'm going to tell you something. Just like that, I didn't feel that anymore. Now that was not characteristic of my life earlier in my life. And maybe you remember some of this, but when I was in the fourth grade, you know, children are different. Your your children are different, Robert? Yeah, very different, some of them. The bad thing about them is when they're just like you. That's the, right, when they got your weaknesses. I, I'm not talking about you in particular. I'm talking about me too. But I was, a, I was a child who wanted to obey and please. So I got in the fourth grade, nine years old, I think, and we had a first-year teacher. Her name was Miss Hamrick. She was pretty. I immediately had a crush on her. I think she was in her early 20s. Well, me and a new teacher, she didn't know how much homework to give to fourth-grade students. So she would get this massive amount of math problems that we were supposed to do. And I, when I'd go home, I'd think, I'll, I'll never get this done. And I start working on it, and after about an hour, I would have a massive migraine headache for maybe that day, maybe that day and the next day, maybe for three or maybe, I don't know if I ever had one for four days or not, but literally I could do nothing. My headache was so, in fact, it was so bad, they, my parents took me over to Duke and they uh, did a where they check your brain? They didn't find anything. Uh, they were thinking there might be some kind of. I got this little knot on the back of my head; it's still there, but there wasn't anything there. But my fifth grade teacher said, uh, "You know, guess how many headaches I had during the summer? Zero. <laughs> so my fifth grade teacher, she was an old mean hag, but." She, uh, Lizzie Lewis, boy. But she said, I'll, I'll help him get over. He told, she told my mother, she'll, he'll get over those. And so the first test that we had, which I never really worried about tests, she gave us some kind of treat or candy, whatever. But I never had any headaches after I got out of Miss Hammer's class. But those things, those headaches, literally, I'd sleep for three days. But it's because my thinking, my imaginations were controlling me, and I was worrying and so forth. And I was lost then, of course. I didn't know anything about uh, the peace of God guarding my mind or anything like that. But it tells us exactly here how to get over that. I'm not talking about all headaches, but headaches that come from worrying and so forth. Then he says this, deliberately change your thoughts to good and righteous things. Verse 8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest. List all these different things that are good in the mind of God. Look at the last phrase. This is a command. Think on these things. Now, these are not things that we naturally think on. Sometimes we are. We might be riding through the mountains and pull off on the side of the road and look out over there and say, man, God's a great God. Look what He's created. Sunset, trees, mountains, valleys. Oh, that's wonderful. But most of the time, we're, our minds are controlled by things that we're not controlling. God, our, you know, our sinful nature and so forth are controlling them. But He says we ought not do that. We ought to deliberately think on good things. Like how the Lord's helped us in the past. What the promises of the Word of God are. This is the reason for Bible memorization. This is the reason for good music. This is the reason... How many... Do you think of the words of of hymns that you sing throughout the day? 
Cannot we get over 860 some songs in the book right there? There ought to be something about everything that you encounter basically in your walk with the Lord. But we're to start thinking on the right things. Are you putting the right things in your mind? Are you putting down depression, lust, hate, worry? He says don't put those things down and think on things that are good and right. And then the last one is practice the behavior and conduct you have seen in your pastor. So verse 9 says, Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. Now God has given a gift to this church. He has placed a pastor over you. Ephesians 4 verse 8 says this, Whereof he... Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors. That's a shepherd. Pastors and teachers. That's the same person. Somebody's going to teach you what the Bible says, how to live, how to be successful in your walk with God. And if you want to have peace, he says, do, do, what you've learned and seen in your pastor. Uh, do is a Greek word, proso. We could just say practice. Practice what you've seen. Execute, accomplish. Uh, for example, Romans 2.2 is used again. He says, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to that, to truth against them that commit such things. So this is things we are to be doing. Your pastor is your example. He's your teacher and so forth. We just put into practice what your pastor has taught you. Notice what it says. The peace of God shall be with you. I'll tell you something. If you've got a bad attitude towards your pastor, you're hindering the peace of God in your life. And so here we are. He's told us how to transform ourselves, transforming into perfect peace. Now, I'll conclude with this. It's probably about 30 years ago. There's a young guy in our church. I took him with me to make some visits one night. And we were just riding in the car and he said, you know... I, he just out of the blue. He said, "I know, you know, I wished I had peace like you, you pastors seem to have." And I said, "What?" He said, "You know, you, you pastors seem to just have kind of a peace about you and so forth." And and I said, "Well, there's no peace that pastors have that that every Christian can't have." You know, and that that comes by living for the Lord and that kind of thing. And uh, you know committing ourselves to being transformed by the renewing of our minds. I, I probably didn't say those words to him. Um, but uh, he didn't choose to do that. He wanted to continue to follow his own ideas and his own desires. Some, some years later, he got married. Eventually, he and his wife left our church. It wasn't too long. Maybe a couple of years after they left our church, his wife called me. She wanted me. They had both left because they, they, they wanted to get out of our church. His wife called me and said, my husband is getting interested in somebody. I, I need you to help me. I said, well, why don't you call your pastor? He said, well, it's his daughter-in-law in the church that he's interested in. I said, Okay. Well, he didn't like it when I showed up at his house. And I talked to her too and I said, look, even if we get something done now, you need to change the way you live. You need to start living to obey the Lord. Both of you are going to have to do that. She wasn't really interested in that. She wanted to get her husband back. But she wasn't really interested in doing what we're talking about right here. 
And this is it's a simple thing. It's not an easy thing, but this is the way we renew our minds. This is the process that God uses to transform us from the inside out, not just so we look good or we do the right thing, but that our very thinking and our reactions and so forth are transformed. And we prove what's the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And we get peace that passes understanding. I believe our nation is probably on the precipice of a major transformation. I mean, I think we're all thinking and hoping that things just kind of, we've got to go into this rough spot and then it's going to all pass away. I've got my doubts about that. You know, we're used to having a, a, short, a war for a while that didn't really affect our nation, and then, you know, we continue to prosper. I'm not sure that's going to happen because of what these sin bills our nation's been laying up. It might be time for payment on those. But that doesn't affect our being transformed by the power of God so that we can have His peace. And you had to be born again, genuinely born again. And you had to do what the Bible says here. And then it really won't matter what the circumstances are. God will be preserving us, keeping us, and we will be taking those steps that cause us to continue to change. And as a result of that, Dave will look like a butterfly instead of a caterpillar. <laughs> Just kidding about that, but spiritually, morally, character-wise, that is what will happen. But you, and you're the only one that can determine to do that. You're the one that has to make the choice.